0: Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. I'm Arthur Snell. I told you last week that we were pausing to prep our new documentary series, but I'm actually delighted to bring you a special episode while we wait for that. I'm currently away on diplomatic assignment in Nigeria. You can probably hear the traffic noise in the background, but before I left, I had the pleasure of hosting the first ever Doomsday Watch Live at 21 Soho in London. As well as revealing a little too much for comfort of my own career as I switched from host to interviewee, I was joined by former American Secret Service agent and chemical weapons expert Dan Cajetta to discuss his career countering terrifying weapons. Here's an edited version of my conversation with Dan, and if you'd like to support this podcast and get discounts for future live events like this, don't forget to search Patreon Doomsday Watch to sign up for as little as £3 a month. Our new series drops on Wednesday, October the 26th, with 10 documentary episodes going deep behind the lines on the threats the world faces today and those coming tomorrow. Patreon supporters will get early access to episodes after launch, plus bonus content, including that interview with me at the show. For now, I hope you enjoy this excerpt from the first ever live Doomsday Watch. Take a seat. Take a seat. Take
1: oh, thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, wow. good evening, everyone. Good evening, Dan. Thank
1: you. Good evening, Arthur.
0: So I just want to call to order this meeting of the Anti-Growth Coalition. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I hope you all had a safe journey from your North London townhouses. <laughs> yes, in a cab. In a cab, exactly. By taxi. That's how yes. we that's how we like to roll. And uh, a huge pleasure to be here and a particular pleasure to welcome Dan Cajeta, just to kind of talk you through. The emergency exit, no, I don't know about, I have no idea where the emergency exit is. Right there. Oh, yeah, there it is. Okay. No, Um, but what I do know is we're going to talk for about half an hour, and then there'll be time for questions. If if you've got burning questions about which nerve agent's going to kill you and how it'll feel, Dan Dan is your man. So this is a real opportunity. Yes. So with that, uh, Dan Cajeta, welcome. Thank you, Arthur. Uh, I, I don't know where to start, but I think um, what I'm going to start with is the fact that you used to be in the Secret Service. Now, there's a whole room full of people. Are you going to have to kill all of us now mm-hmm. that I've let the cat out of... No, I was, that's in, a relief. Yeah.
1: I was in the U.S. Secret Service, which, despite the name, is not secret. I printed it on a business card. And despite what certain individuals in Scotland might say, I will not name anybody, uh, it is not the same thing as the CIA. Oh. Uh, it is the um, an ancient by US standards department, charged with protecting the president and the White House uh, and basically securing the president. And so I did work for them for six years.
0: So when you were at school with the careers counselor, what did you say you wanted
1: to be? Um, I wanted to to play around with nuclear reactors. (laughs) But I failed calculus. (laughs) Yes, and so engineering did not beckon as a career field for me. But you did join the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. Yes, yes. It was about 1985, the Cold War. Remember that thing called the Cold War? Yes. Yes. Uh, I was living in Arizona. Uh, My father says to me, the family budget does not extend to a lavish university education, so find somebody to pay for it, kid, or else it's the state college down the street. Ah, okay. It was the Cold War. Lots of military scholarships were on the go. And I applied for an army scholarship and I got it. The only thing is, the army wanted me to learn Russian. They didn't say anything about chemicals. So I spent much of my university time learning to speak Russian because Ronald Reagan paid me $28,000 to learn Russian. And um, what's the Russian for chemical warfare? Oh, uh, (laughs) we didn't
0: plan these questions, sorry. (laughs) I should should, should have warned you about that one.
1: Kamichiskaya voyna. Yeah, it sounds sounds legit. Okay. Yes, indeed. Um, indeed. So I went off to university. I went to this obscure place called Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. Go Frogs, by the way. If any of you are American football enthusiasts, it's a very good school for that. I got commissioned in the U.S. Army at the end of my university time, but it was in 1991. By the time I got commissioned, nobody cared about speaking Russian. The Cold War was basically over, and there was a dust-up with Saddam Hussein. And I got sent to this obscure branch of the U.S. Army called the U.S. Army Chemical Corps, which, by that point, had pretty much renounced offensive chemical warfare. But it was the branch of the army just for protecting against chemical, biological, and nuclear warfare. So I got sent off to do that. And one thing led to another, and you ended up in the White House. Yes, a few sort of zigzag paths in between because, you know, I tried to be a spy, I failed. You You know, you apply to a post office box in Arlington, Virginia, and they send you to a job interview, and they give you a lie detector test and a... And a, and a bunch of bizarre interviews, and then they send you a you know, letter saying, no, we, we, we don't need any spies this year. So. And I tried to be a, to be a diplomat. Um, that failed, obviously. Oh, oh the, this, the magic system this. where beer appears. <laughs> uh, I have to say, I've got to do more of these uh, Snell gigs. <laughs> this is already better than the Royal Institution, I can tell you. I didn't get a single <laughs> drop to drink out of them no offense to the royal institution, they are lovely people. Yes, they are. Um, so we're at the White House. Well, we get to the White House because I was laboring away in obscurity in the basement of the Pentagon, literally. And some in- religious enthusiasts in Japan used this thing called sarin in 1995, which caused a panic in the across the U.S. government because at that point, chemical warfare had been sort of consigned to the dustbin of history. It's largely a diplomatic and arms control thing to get rid of the old stuff. Oh, it's too expensive and weird for terrorists to use. We don't care. And within days, I had an office in the Pentagon with a window. That's unusual. Um, yeah, and a pay rise. And within a year, I was working in the White House, not in the Secret Service at first. I, my first six years at the White House, Uh, which is longer than Jimmy Carter, I should add, Um, (laughs) uh, uh, was at this thing called the White House Military Office, where I was an oddity. I was a civil servant. I was still doing Army stuff as a reservist on the weekend, but I was responsible for basically planning for the resilience of the White House complex against chemical and biological terrorism, which people thought was a hypothetical thing. But by the end of my tenure there, it already happened because in you may or may not remember, in 2001, we had anthrax spores literally turning up in the mailroom at the White House. Um, And then, really, I got a better offer. Uh, I got offered more money, a badge and a gun, a chance to travel the world, and I moved my office 400 meters down the street and worked with the U.S. Secret Service for another uh, six years after that.
0: And in the Secret Service, your main job is to keep the President alive. So, you
1: you did good at that. they, they stayed alive. Well, yeah, I mean, at the time, I mean, we joked that George Bush was the world's most hated man. I mean, uh, history has done the impossible. It's sort of, you know, made liberals like the CIA and made, you know, normal people sort of realize that George Bush wasn't actually as bad as it could be because it could get worse, um, <laughs> which by the way, because I've spent most of my time dealing with disaster scenarios and the end of the world and doomsday. Yeah, and stuff like that. Never yeah. ever ask yourself how can it possibly get worse, because it can. You uh,
0: you would travel the world. You would go and find out if there were chemical and biological and uh
1: radiological hazards. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I you know, I worked in this obscure branch of the Secret Service. I wrote all about this. Now it's not in a secret, really. I wrote a whole. Article in a trade magazine that nobody reads, but anyway, uh, we had this thing called the Hammer Team because the US government loves, just absolutely adores contrived acronyms. Hammer was uh, Hazardous Agent Mitigation Medical Emergency Response. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we were the Hammer Team. I was a team leader in the Hammer Team. And we were, depending on the day of the week and what year we're talking about, it was a four or five man team. We were more or less shadow the president every time he went out of the White House, except on very short notice, sort of, you know, very impromptu things. And we'd lurk about in the back of the motorcade in a black van. That was our motto for years. We were a van away from history, uh, you know. Oh, Dan, how exciting is the Secret Service? I don't know. It was in the van. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, you know.
0: And wh- whenever the u s president travels, they have that huge car called the Beast that always gets stuck on the, the um, sleeping policeman yeah,
1: H- yeah how do they how do they move that thing well I mean every time the president goes somewhere, it generates this huge logistical footprint i mean it's 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 amazing it's an amazing logistical circus uh, it was it was both amazing and Frankly, it points financially disgusting to be part of this operation. <laughs> we're start to think about how much this all costs, but lots of stuff leapfrogs ahead of the president all the time in large u s air Force cargo planes. So when I say we, we were a van away from history, we had those four vans we later had six vans, we had four vans and the poor guy down at the Ford dealership had the service of the van. And was just befuddled. You know, we'd turn up with a picture of the van at the Great Wall of China or the picture of the van at the Vatican. And that van right there, you can see from the number plates on it. You know, yeah. Uh, and yeah, so sure. we we I have a lot of frequent flyer miles on the world's worst airline, which is the U.S. Air Force.
0: <laughs> um, back uh, to the scary uh, weapons. How scared oh, should we be? Uh, chemical.
1: All right, I've been I've been dealing with like. What, they used to call it bugs and gas uh, in, the, in the US Army, uh, chemical and biological weapons. You know, I spent the first half of a 30-year career trying to basically be relevant and get other people to care about it. And you fall prey to the whole sort of panic-mongering, the sky is falling sky, kind of, this is really bad stuff, it's dangerous, it's dangerous, it's dangerous, oh my God, you know, the bad guys use this, we're all gonna die, and you sort of, When you're a keen guy in your 20s and 30s, you know, you try to do that as a way to be relevant because you actually believe in the stuff you've been trained in and all that. But you start to develop a a broader historical perspective and, like, wait a second. You know, if we're talking about actual methods of warfare, we don't have much experience with chemical warfare. Uh... You know, yeah, there's people in the audience who probably have a grandfather or great-grandfather who probably got sick from it in the First World War. But, every, but I guarantee you 10 or 15 times as many of you have a grandfather or a great-grandfather or somebody who died from something much more conventional. Uh, uh, the reason why uh, we don't really have chemical warfare or biological warfare that often in a society in a world full of warfare is these things are actually kind of overrated because they rely on a lot of variables and we have this whole arc of military technology that tries to process the random variables and unpredictability out of things we got precision weapons and we got an entire command and control and intelligence you know infrastructure designed to target you know precise weapons and to make lethality predictable. Something that literally kills somebody on one day but not the other because the air temperature is different and the wind is blowing in a different direction. Honestly, the the very, very boring people who run armies, no offense to staff officers in the army, uh, I was one once, uh, you know, I they want predictability. Uh, you know, something that is good in five or ten percent of the calendar is not a sort of thing you want to spend a lot of money on in building a modern army. Now, that is different, that's necessarily a different scenario than say uh, killing your political opponents because when you're talking about that, I mean really we're not talking about chemical warfare, we're talking about poisoning as a method of political violence which is a much, much, much older thing. It goes all the way back to the ancient pharaohs. There are, you know, there are because I, I, not to name drop, I did verify this with Neil McGregor, there are papyruses, uh, you know, and stuff in the British Museum that refer to poisons and poisonings of political opponents and supposed remedies of poisons. You know. So, so then,
0: when when we have these sort of panics, there was that moment, I think, where President Biden was sort of talking about the Russians might have used chemical weapons in, in Ukraine. What, what's going on there? Why are people suddenly getting in a spin about that? Oh, it's...
1: It's, it's, it's a funny thing. I think there... When you talk about something like the Ukraine conflict, and it's it's different than a lot of other conflicts in the past, it's amplified because it is more visible to everybody than anything else we've ever seen. It's more visible all the time to everybody because, I mean, not that things like the Syria war, the Syria war has, we don't talk about it anymore, but it's happening and it's highly visible, but you have to make a little bit of an effort to find it. Uh, you're confronted by the... Your, people are confronted by the day-to-day reality of the, the, uh, this Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, and there are people who are basically voyeuristic about this. They get bored of seeing bombs and rockets. They want to see something different. Maybe not consciously. I think there's an element of voyeurism. Because uh, for, for, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, by the way, I apologize for the absolute train wreck that my Twitter feed is. But since February and this conflict, uh, arose, I've been doing an awful lot of tamping down what I would describe as, we found something weird and different. It's obviously a chemical weapon. Chemical warfare is obviously the next thing. And to a professional like me, it's not obviously the next thing uh, for a variety of historical reasons. I don't know if that makes any sense to you or not. But... Well, it's, it, is it because, as you said,
0: for one reason, these, these weapons are actually not very good. Hmm. They don't do what, what people hmm. want them to yeah. do. But also, actually, the, the downsides, you know, even for
1: Vladimir Putin, are considerable. Well, well yes. And this whole assumption, there's a, there's a sort of a Hollywood-based assumption that uh, everybody still secretly has chemical and biological weapons. Because there's numerous plots to novels and films about a leak at the chemical warfare facility, or the rock, stolen rockets, you know, or you know. So there's this there's this weird assumption that actually that the great efforts that have been made by countries around the world to largely get out of this expensive and annoying business, uh, those were just a sham, and everybody secretly still has it. I mean, I I, I deal with the conspiracy theory loons on this. I mean, not even daily, hourly. I'd say <laughs> it's a full-time job right there. And so there's this, there's this, there's this odd assumption that runs as a, you know, a sort of a permanent conspiracy theory, uh, you know, on the online ecosystem. That yeah, yeah, chemical warfare, and biological warfare, this is really a thing. Now, I mean, I'd say the sad thing is nuclear warfare still is a thing. And you know,
0: we're going to come on to nuclear. No, okay, too, we'll say that. So I pack that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think the encouraging thing here is that, obviously, if you've come to a comedy venue for an event called Doomsday Watch, you're you're probably a bit confused, but what you've helped us do is realise that chemical, biological, nerve agent warfare is actually quite an unlikely thing. Let's come to now. Okay. Russia, Ukraine, uh, lots of people, quite reasonably, um, because you hear the Russian politicians, particularly the sort of the crazy ones on TV, are quite scared of the prospect of Russia launching what they call a tactical nuclear weapon, a small
1: nuclear weapon, yeah. because they're losing. Ah. What's going on there? Yeah, it's, I mean, some of this is rhetoric. Uh, some of this is, I'm not sure most people know what a tactical nuclear weapon is or does. It's, a, it's, it's become this totem. I'm not saying it's good or bad. In fact, I'm going to say that they're bad. Uh, I think we can agree on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, they're bad, they bad things. Sure. You know, I, you know, I spent a lot of time getting my head around tactical nuclear weapons. I also say tactical nuclear weapons are extremely expensive and high maintenance. Um, that's a factor we should bear in because things that are totally expensive and high maintenance, um, Russia doesn't do well in that that we're seeing. Uh, um, high maintenance in the Russian military are not things that are necessarily meshing up well in my head at the moment, given the practical track record. But, you know. and
0: does so that that comes to a fundamental question: Does Russia have tactical
1: nukes that work well? That's a good question. Does it have? Ta- does it? Does it theoretically have tactical nuclear weapons? It's it does. It said it does. Uh, whether how well they work, I don't know. I mean, shall I, shall I just dig into that a little bit, please? All right. I mean, right. This is Doomsday Watch. Come All right. All right. Yeah. Since we're on Doomsday Watch. Yeah. All right. So a nuclear weapon is the cutting edge of 1945 technology. Okay. <laughs> Literally. All right. First nuclear weapons. The only nuclear war was the Second World War. Okay. Despite what the conspiracy theorists said, you know, you know, there haven't been other nuclear attacks since then. Be, you wouldn't believe it. There are conspiracy theorists who are really into these uh, fringe theories, um, but. The default nuclear weapon, and there's only a couple ways you make a nuclear weapon. I'm going to say this. This is nothing you're not going to find in a couple of decent textbooks online. I, you know, so I'm not giving away the deepest, darkest, restricted data, anything like that. But go on. Give, give yeah. away some of that, too. Um, They've paid a lot to be here. Yeah, If you, if you, if you enter into the nuclear weapon game... Your entry point is not a really, really small weapon that you stick in an artillery shell. It's not a really, really, really big one that you stick on the end of an ICBM and launch, you know, way up in orbit and comes screaming down at Mach 27. Your your default entry point is something that weighs about 10,000 to 14,000 pounds, and it was very much like what got dropped on Hiroshima or Nagasaki, as a certain certain bang, and it's. It's, I mean, I stood next to the absolute mock-ups of these things. I got a photo of me on Twitter I, I get next to the training mock-up of, the, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Fat Man, uh, and it's, it's almost as big as the stage, okay? The, the one that got dropped in Nagasaki. Uh, that's not something you put in the you know, a 152-millimeter artillery shell and fire, okay? Uh, so the default entry point into, into, into nuclear weapons is a certain... Size of bang, uh, which is on the sort of all right. If we're gonna if we're going if we're going if, if we're gonna rate nuclear weapons, we'll, we'll rate them on a sort of meat thermometer scale from well done, which is the really really big ones that sit on ICBMs and are gonna you know, destroy entire cities, to uh, extra extra rare, which are really really tiny ones that were designed to go into artillery shells and demolition charges and things like that. So you know. Uh, A Hiroshima-Nagasaki bomb is big and fat and somewhere in the medium-rare category, okay? Uh, And it takes a huge amount of work to deviate from that in either direction. And it's just scientifically complicated. It is. Well, not only that. Uh, The bigger or smaller you make a nuclear weapon from the default entry point, uh, the more, not only the more development work, but the more moving, well, not necessarily moving parts, Uh, expendable shelf life parts, we'll put it that way, the the, the stuff that goes inside a nuclear weapon. Uh, And so the bigger, the smaller it is, the more often some very, very highly trained technician has to take it apart and put it back together again and replace a lot of stuff. And do we know if the Russians are doing that? I have no idea, but, you know, if we're... if we're at a point where there's corruption at the top, you know, in that, you know cabinet ministers and oligarchs are somehow got billion pound bank balances and large super yachts in the States and Perugia and stuff like that, you know, and there's corruption at the bottom where 19-year-old kids are literally selling their rifles. It stands to reason that there's corruption and inefficiency and everything in between. So it's a natural question to me whether the guy whose job it is to use a bunch of expensive tools to drive out to a depot in the middle of nowhere uh, every three months and take apart and put it back together as a particular nuclear weapon, whether the supply chain actually exists for that, whether his tools exist for that, whether he exists for that, or he just exists on a spreadsheet and somebody's trousering the money. I think we can call that a positive story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, you, know, you know, corruption is good when it's the other guy that you're trying to defeat in warfare, uh, you know. Um, that may or may not be a Ho Chi Minh quote uh, because, <laughs> frankly, the, the North Vietnamese won the Vietnam War because the South Vietnam was corrupt, and there was corruption from the top to the bottom. It was a bit like this. Why, why did the South Vietnamese Army collapse in 1975 despite the fact that the U.S. spent, you know, a decade and squillions of uh, dollars in treasure and thousands of advisors and, you know, basically love bombing that regime with money? I literally you know, love bombing it with bombs I mean, uh, because there was corruption at every single level from the president to the generals to all the way down to the 17-year-old guy who got drafted out of his village you know, who didn't have any money and because somebody trousered his, um, his salary. So he sells his hand grenades and he sells his hand grenades to the other guy who was going to use the hand grenades to defeat the government. So corruption... Corruption is endemic in some societies. when you don't have rule of law, uh, but on the other hand, you also have things worth stealing, uh, and a society that is pivoted to craven materialism—it just gonna breed corruption. So I'm thinking, I think we're seeing that. You know, we're seeing a, you know, we're seeing this. What was always a minority opinion in defense circles, but n- not a totally ignored minority opinion. The the whole idea that, really, the Red Army, the Soviet Army, now the Russian Army, are they, are they actually any good against anybody with guns? Or is it the historical model that these large conscript armies are basically tools of coercion for internal security purposes? On that point, uh,
0: looking at the time, we've got a
1: few minutes for questions before we break.
0: So I don't know if... Um, oh, the, the two hands went up right there, yeah. and then another hand there. Okay, so... All right. Yes, sir. Yes. Okay, so you say that chemical and nuclear weapons would be tactically useless in, from a military and strategic standpoint. But you also say that they terrify and that we have put them on this pedestal of mm. horror. Mm. There are reasons to use it to influence public opinion, to yeah. it, try to get Ukraine to capitulate in one mm. way or another. Yeah. Would you think that it's possible that chemical or nuclear weapons could be used on some scale?
1: And this is going to sound like a cowardly answer. It's possible. Uh, but I also think that that sort of calculus backfires, uh, particularly when we're seeing a situation where there is a fundamental miscalculation from the beginning of this conflict. Because the idea was, again, you know, Putin, I think, clearly thought that uh, Kiev and the, and the Ukrainian government was South Vietnam in 1975. They're all a bunch of corrupt guys. They're going to get in the first helicopter off of the US. It's all going to collapse like a house of cards. If not in three days, at least in 30. Uh, so there's a lot of fundamental miscalculations, and one of the miscalculations is a, a clear-cut will to fight. So this sort of thing may only backfire. It may reinforce the will to fight. You know, it takes what is already existential con- you know, conflict, and possibly in people's minds, makes it even more so. Uh, so, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what to what to what sort of, you know, ketchup or mustard to put on that otherwise sort of crappy sandwich there, but it, it's possible. Uh, it's, we, we start getting to you know, Putin's psyche, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a chemical weapon guy, I'm not, a, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't know about that. Sir?
0: Um, but yes, yeah, um yeah. my, uh, my friend Alex. Um, the two of us grew up in Moscow as children, yeah. um, we both English, but, but, but grew up in Moscow. Um, How have relations with Russia and the West deteriorated to such an extent in the last 10 years that we've gone from a point of relative amicability to a point now where
1: we're talking about nuclear and chemical war? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question because I I actually, when I was a graduate student in uh, the early 1990s, working on a master's degree uh, in international affairs, doing army reserve stuff at the weekends and all that, but I took a leave of absence, and I actually worked in Moscow for six months during the Yeltsin years. And I I really see... Uh, I mean, the 1990s in Moscow were like the Wild West. Anything was possible, both good and bad. And, you know, people were poor, but there was a sense of optimism. And there was a sense that people could, you know, make their lives better, and there's a sense that, you know... Yeah, I mean, this is is a country that, you know, had a rough deal because of the Soviet Union and all that, but, you know, there was was this optimism that things were going to get better. And a weird thing happened. Uh, Yes, people's lives did get better, but people's lives got better based on a perverse, weird trickle-down of the fact that, yeah, it's a world of opportunity, but it was also, because it was the Wild West, there wasn't much rule of law. So the people who got insanely wealthy were largely people who were exploiting others, okay? Uh, And then comes this guy, Putin, who, you know, seems to not, on the face of it, care about material wealth, but he he found a way to exploit this system, uh, you know, and, you know, get himself in charge. Uh, and make a weird deal, which is all right. Stay out of politics, make all the money you want, and we will, you know, will more or less pay off this burgeoning middle class with a better, a better, you know, lifestyle. And that seems to be the weird deal that happened. And it didn't happen all at once. It happened like slowly over, you know, 15, 20 years, like sort of boiling the lobster slowly. So we're at the point where the lobster is fully cooked. And nobody can remember when you know the lobster jumped in the pot, but you know uh, it just happened a little bit incrementally. And I think it's an object lesson for you know, uh, in a lot of ways. And I think historians are going to be grappling with this for you know, you know, centuries. And I mean, I've got a vested interest in this myself. I mean, my my surname is not exactly Anglo-Saxon. I'm I'm half Lithuanian. You know, I you know I come out of Baltic roots. You know, I come from a an entire family tree of people who are uh, to put it put it bluntly, are not just suspicious of Russians, but you know actively fearful uh, for for good historical reasons. Uh, and you know and there's a lot of people running around now saying, yeah, hey, there's a whole periphery of you know starting in Finland going all the way down to Moldova and down into the Caucasus. So people are saying, Hey, we 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 know this. We know how this story goes. We've seen this before. You've spent 20 years not listening to us when we were saying, "Hey, look, this is not good. This is, you know, this is bad." And maybe part of the moral of the story is maybe maybe people in in, in the UK and France and Germany and Spain and Italy and the US need to do a little bit of a better job of listening to the neighbors who are closer by, you know, who kind of sp- seen this story before in some cases like places like you know my ancestral motherland Lithuania Lithuania and Poland they've seen this scenario for, you know 8, 10, 15 times over history Yeah, you know, and it's it's a little bit tiresome to still have to deal with that in this modern era when we're supposed to all be getting along better.
0: I want to thank Dan. Okay. Fantastic uh, insights and uh, please all enjoy the interval. <laughs> all right. Brilliant. Thanks for listening, and stay glued to this feed for news of our new documentary series going behind the headlines on the threats of today and scoping out the dangers of tomorrow. Don't forget, to get each episode after launch one week early with extra content and access to future live events, search Patreon Doomsday Watch to find out how to support. It's hugely appreciated.